Hey, this is KRCL General Manager Gavin Dahl. On Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, KRCL will be asking listeners of Brand New Day, The Midday Show, The Afternoon Show, and Radioactive to become new members, get lapsed memberships renewed, and for those with the means to make a year-end gift to support Utah's best radio station, KRCL. The last chance to give to our end-of-the-year drive will be on Saturday during Breakfast Jam, Sagebrush Serenade, Afternoon Delight, and Smile Jamaica. We've got a brand new limited edition thank you gift as well. You can score a new KRCL scarf with your donation. Stay tuned and give big to listeners, Community Radio of Utah. Thanks so much. KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for KRCL comes from the Utah Farm and Food Conference, January 12th to 14th in Cedar City, where more than 200 attendees will gather to learn and network about the agrihood, from small to urban farms and artisan producers to those who support them. For tickets and conference schedule, visit utahfarmconference.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Thanks for plugging into your community with me tonight. Radioactive, weeknights from 6 to 7. Stick around, coming up on the show, Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall gave me some time over the weekend to talk with her about the proposed expansion of Interstate 15 from Farmington to Salt Lake and what that means for homes on the west side in the expansion's path. There are community meetings going on as we speak. One this evening at Swords and Unity Center until 7.30. Tomorrow night over at Mestizo Coffee House from 5.30 to 7.30 with NeighborWorks Salt Lake, which built or helped fund many of those homes that now are in the path of I-15 expansion here in Salt Lake. And then on Thursday the 8th, a community listening session on UDOT's proposed I-15 expansion. It's happening from 6.30 on at the Zions Building of the Utah Fair Park, 155 North 10th West in Salt Lake City. That's hosted by Senator Luz Escamilla, Representative Angela Romero, and Representative Sandra Holland. Stay tuned on how you can put your public comment in on this topic. Also this hour, Blake Spaulding of Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm stopped by the studios, oh, a couple days ago, talked to me about trying to keep her restaurant afloat in the Uinta Basin. They've had to resort to GoFundMe. We'll find out what's going on with that this hour. But right now, we're going to go live. We've got live guests in the studio with me from the Lords of Misrule 2022, Patrick Smith and Connor Bond. How you doing? Thanks for coming in. Doing good. Thank doing you. Great. All right. So I wanted to talk to you about this because Lords of Misrule number one was on the show previously yes. and now you're back for 2022 it's very interactive our friend and poet uh, rj walker in the midst of this but he had a class so he sent the two of you patrick tell me what you do with the production hey yeah my name is patrick i am a uh, actor and divisor I was kind of part of the writing process um with rj uh we all kind of got to uh you were on were you on with the first um, not the, the first one? but the other the shows. second one yeah the whole format kind mm-hmm. of lets the uh crew be collaborative and it's yeah. a lot of fun to find those characters it's a christmas theme but it's a bit dark right it is definitely <laughs> right. a bit dark it's a little um, twisted. christmas <laughs> horror which it is know, for many people christmas can be painful oh yeah <laughs> I, I would say uh the best way to think about it is it we we're really focused around the play uh a christmas carol and uh christmas carol you know shares yeah. those 
those Scrooge, interests of all that stuff. Scrooge getting his just desserts, and <laughs> our cast definitely gets their just desserts. <laughs> um, so that's how it sort of comes. All right. So it's coming up December 16th and 17th at the Box Theater at the Gateway, mm-hmm. December 21st through 24th at the Alliance Theater at Trolley Square. And it's a benefit, right? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, we are giving our donations to unsheltered relatives uh, and the mission to feed the homeless uh, with quality hot meals every weekend. Um, big fan of unsheltered relatives. We're also looking at maybe volunteering one of these weekends as long as we can get all that. Help him to cook out. food with Dave John, full disclosure. Yeah. He's a volunteer host of Living the Circle of Life and has started up our unsheltered relatives. Started that during the pandemic and does his best to raise funds and food in the community to go feed folks on Saturdays. But uh, tell me your characters and a bit of the plot of this. Patrick, will start oh, sure. with you. Uh, my name is Bailey Martin in the show. Mm. Um, Echoes and of It's a Wonderful Life in that character. Yes, name. indeedy. I'm a professional actor and skateboarder. <laughs> Uh, and so is I, that uh, your character? Is that you? Okay, okay. <laughs> you know that's that's the devising uh. magic. Where, do, where does it stop and where does it end? Hopefully, the the, the, the bad stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, he's he's a guest star on a production of my teammate here, uh, and it all sort of just boils up when we're doing a production of the Christmas Carol. Okay, and Connor, what's your character? What's your what's your plot? Yeah, line? so I play Pastor Lucas Carroll, and I'm a televangelist who sort of lost his way. Um, and uh, I'm putting on a production of A Christmas Carol, Pastor Lucas Carroll's A Christmas Carol. And then the story of um, the whole show is that a drunken, riotous mob of people wearing like messed up santa outfits comes in and that that's you guys you. wait i've heard news stories about santa uh pub crawls that devolve into that yes I yeah mean. so imagine that if you want to come in your own santa costume we're not running a pub crawl but you can figure that one out <laughs> so this is interactive uh, yeah. folks are invited to attend in person or watch online mm-hmm. and donations are accepted check tonight's show notes for details but i can interact with the plot line that's correct yeah. uh that's actually exactly what we want to uh, provide is you come the tickets are free once you're in the door uh, as the show goes on there are multiple moments where you can uh, donate uh, to see the show change a little bit like uh, I think it's drunk Shakespeare out there oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that so the audience can change the show every night mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's irreverent <laughs> and I'm looking at your your poster for this which I'll put in the show notes folk, folks for the Lord Lord of Misrule 2022 and is that blood splatter? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a little blood splatter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you spent all your budget in that, splatter. huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a free asset. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, depends on how you make it. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so opening night is December 16th at the Box Theater, and you're also accepting in-kind donations to help out the folks um, that yeah. our unsheltered relatives helps and perhaps the road home. What are you mm-hmm. looking for? Uh, you know, mostly things that are critical. Uh, we know gloves are a really big deal. Uh, coats. Warm goods, anything that might keep people warm. I always imagine like socks must be yeah. nice to turn over socks at least as often yeah. as possible. Well, we have just a few minutes left. So what is it you want people to understand about the experience they're walking into, Connor? I think um, the the joy of it is that you can mess with the play as much as you want. That and is so, tantalizing. Like uh, my favorite part is that even you can like throw trash at us while we're up on stage what? and like- what? We'll play it. We'll play an air horn sound if you get it into the trash can. Oh my gosh! And we'll wrap your Coca Colas so you get extra garbage to throw at us too. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 
and um, just like getting to pick out which card and be like, oh, it'd be perfect if like suddenly now it's a noir film version of A Christmas Carol or uh, we have to puppet a, a big skeleton for this next part. All sorts of crazy stuff like that. That's awesome, Patrick. Where can folks find more details about the Lord of Misrule 2022? Oh, more details are definitely at our Facebook event page uh, where you can get a copy of our poster or catch a look at one of our posters at one of the many coffee shops we've dropped it off at. Couldn't help myself. I got a, my sweet Lord queued up for the Lord of Misrule. Yes. But you have something else you <laughs> wanted to squeeze in. Oh, yes, indeedy. Uh, so... We are good old fans of SLCC, and the South City Campus Black Box is going to be doing a majoring in improv fall semester show December 10th at 7 p.m. The admission is free, but donations are welcome. They've been working all semester for this. So some improv. I love it. I'll put some details in the show notes on that as well. My best to you and RJ and the cast of The Lord of Misrule. Break a Christmas hat, okay? (laughs) We'll do it. We'll do our best. Oh, the Lord of Misrule. Check tonight's show notes, folks, and you can find your way to tickets for that production. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive. And if you haven't heard, the Utah Department of Transportation is set to expand Interstate 15 from Farmington to Salt Lake by as many as seven lanes in each direction. Meetings going on tonight, also tomorrow and Thursday this week. Check tonight's show notes, rallies, and resources. UDOT's public comment period extended to January 13th. Now, here at Radioactive, we've held two panel discussions so far with grassroots groups and a Salt Lake City resident or two, but I wanted to find out what Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall was doing on this topic. So, yesterday, she came down to the studios to talk with me over the weekend. Here's that conversation. Mayor, I wanted to get you on to talk about I-15 expansion, but also uh, housing and homelessness in the capital city. Thanks for giving us some time. I'm always happy to talk with you. Thank you. What do you make... Of the I-15 expansion, Um, what I've been hearing from folks doing some panels on the show is that they originally thought this was just a rebuild of interchanges, and they feel surprised, especially here on the west side of Salt Lake City, that expansion seven lanes potentially in either direction from Farmington to Salt Lake down to 4 South is really going to impact the west side again. Yeah, it is. And we are just beginning to see what that impact could look like in the shape of the potential of houses being removed. And that was uh, upsetting, even you know, viscerally upsetting revelation as we were briefed by UDOT on this potential. When were you briefed? On election day morning, I remember really clearly. And they were set to have and did have a meeting with uh, neighbor works and community members that night on election night. And... Uh, I looked at the, they showed me the slide deck of the proposed improvements, of which there are a lot of improvements in terms of east-west connectivity and a trail system sort of along one of the current vehicle lanes of Beck Street that would be a good north-south connector. And I said, so what's the cost? <laughs> and they said, well, what do you mean? It's uh, this is, These are good things. I said, they are, but are you doing it in the existing right-of-way? Or how are you going to have the capacity for all of these system improvements? And then they dug up a slide that showed the homes on the west side of the corridor um, within a perimeter that they were going to study. Um, according to either of these transportation alternatives that the community now gets to review. And I said, Why, what are those houses doing in these boxes? And they said, that's a potential path of expansion 
Um, and it could be that those houses need to be removed for it. Let me play this clip from a homeowner on Argyle Court, which is a community just west of the station within a block's walk built by NeighborWorks, I think, back in the 90s. A lot of Community Reinvestment Act money, I'm imagining, yeah. um, making the best out of an area that didn't have that kind of investment. Here's uh, Janet Fisher. So I'm a longtime resident of Argyle Court, one of the original streets that NeighborWorks developed um, in the mid-90s. And uh, I-15 is in my backyard. I can touch the wall. Right. You have a great big wall separating you now. And I, I would have to count up the number of lanes now, but adding a lane to each side, that pretty much go through your living room. Means my house will be gone. Yeah. And you've lived there since it was built, correct? Since that, NeighborWorks did Argyle yes, Street. Yes. Um, many of the residents on Argyle Court are original homeowners. And are you all together, I presume, rather up in arms? But thank you for joining us tonight. We are very concerned about um, how uh, UDOT will be dictating our lives. And I understand that, that no one sort of came to you and said, gee, get ready for this. No. Um, we uh, received in the mail about three weeks ago uh, a, a flyer, uh, eight by 11 flyer. It looked like junk mail <laughs> um, that uh, notified us about, um, about meetings about this expansion. And uh, we went around the neighborhood and just alerted everybody uh, to pay attention to this because a lot of people didn't even recognize that they that they got any information. Hmm. Um, I think during that meeting, uh, the I-15 planning team alluded to some something that they did this past summer, but none of us have an awareness of, of what that was. So, Mayor, that's Janet Fisher of Argyle Court. And I imagine any time a conversation like this starts with UDOT, it's it's a blindsiding uh, impact. What is your reaction to hearing Janet um, talk about what's going to happen to her home of nearly 30 years? I can't tolerate it. I'm, I'm provoked. And I think we all should be. Janet and their neighbors are what we are investing and working our zoning and working the land we own working our private relationships with, you know, private development happening, trying to get affordable housing dollars in there. We are trying to create more Janets and more neighbors like Argyle Court. And all of this is at the same time happening while we have a presidential administration in the White House that is investing for the first time in our nation's history in rebuilding communities that I-15, I-80, railway corridors, um, dissected and bisected generations ago. They're literally putting grant money on the table to rebuild neighborhoods, even at the cost of, in, at some parts in the country, removal of these highway systems. A lot of what UDOT is doing now predates your administration. I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, what are the agreements in place or the statutes that govern the relationship between the capital city and UDOT and expansion? Are there promises from when the freeway was expanded the last time? Um, are you concerned about understanding that? Yeah, this is an unusual circumstance, of course. It's really rare 
Um, we can think back to pre-2002 Olympics when the last I-15 major expansion happened. So this doesn't happen often. And um, neighborhoods around Warm Springs, Marmalade neighborhood, who really have been suffering from the semi-truck traffic coming off of uh, the businesses on Beck Street, that those trucks loaded down with gravel, et cetera, are kind of plowing through their neighborhoods to get onto the current freeway system. And we've had um, years-long conversations. Even I remember in 2019 running for mayor and, and sitting through the I do library office hours, you remember, and hearing from lots of residents saying, we know I-15 is going to be doing an expansion. We really want them to fix right now what is running semi-trucks through our neighborhood. So we've seen this on the horizon, but there is no obligation beyond community input opportunities for UDOT to coordinate with the city. This is really about relationships. And they are, we do have a, a communicative relationship, like our transportation team, who mm -hmm. gets to have briefings from their transportation project planners. But we don't have a stick to shake here um, more than our momentum as a community. They've been tasked and funded by the legislature to do an expansion to improve commuting times from Davis County into Salt Lake City. And that's the job that they're aiming to do. There are three community listening sessions. In fact, by the time this airs on the show, there'll be one underway in the community, another one Tuesday night, another one Wednesday night. But it feels performative, Mayor. It feels that they have to host these listening sessions, but they're going to do what they're going to do. How do we... How do we get any consideration? And I have to admit, I have a dog in this fight. I lived on uh, the Warm Springs neighborhood for since 95 and then moved um, just literally to the other side of the freeway in April. And if I had known the expansion was coming, it would have probably changed where I yeah. chose to, to buy and remain uh, a, a resident of the city. There's folks, though, that don't have that opportunity yeah. to take a look at where they are and say, where do I go now? Our housing situation is in crisis. I, at first, I think it's worth saying that the relationship that our capital city has with the legislature, with the director of UDOT, with lots of governmental and quasi-governmental institutions that end up having authority through their property ownership, their funding, et cetera, to make decisions that impact our communities, our relationship with those entities matters. And it plays out in ways that we can't undo for decades, even generations to come. Our relationship with UDOT is very good from a government-to-government -government working standpoint. And I asked point blank, is it possible that these houses do not have to be consumed for, your, for you to still achieve what the legislature has tasked and funded you to do? And they responded that, yes, that they believe that is possible, that there may be some iterations, some shifting of that, that box right now that um, covers those homes, that these homes could be preserved and the neighborhood could not be harmed yet again. What that looks like is, I think, a process that they're looking at internally, but they are, as they say, open to the community telling them new iterations or, or uh, exchanges that, that could happen mm. in, in terms of what's on the table right now. I'm also thinking, because having moved KRCL into this neighborhood, 
I'm thinking over here just west of us, there's Janet on Argyle Court, literally just east of the freeway. And then literally just west is Our Lady of Guadalupe. And then also um, the Mary Jackson Elementary. Yeah. And we know what an asthma corridor I-15 is, about half a mile on either side. The the real public health implications of expanding the freeway. I realize the tone in my voice is very alarmed. and And I am, not only as someone covering it, but someone that's going to live with this decision. So what is your advice to the community um, in terms of taking action now? They will do a project. It's, it's, it's coming. It is not fruitful for us to simply fight the expansion as and expect that they will simply call off the project. We know this from the Inland Port. They're going to do it. How they do it matters. Mm-hmm. And we need to be uh, constructively approaching and absolutely engaging in these listening sessions that they have, submitting letters to UDOT, which we are grateful they said yes to our request for an extension into mid-January, and mobilizing as a community to see how do we, uh, we recognize that there are some benefits that they have on the table right now that don't exist for us today in terms of those connectivity, pedestrian and bicycle access, east-west permeability, I don't know what the bargaining chips are and if, if those may need to be some of them, but I would rather see our neighborhoods remain intact than gain some of those connectivity benefits that are on the table. And if it needs to come down to that kind of a negotiation, that's I'm willing to do that. But I want to know also what the community wants. Um, and to your larger philosophical issue, which is absolutely at play in the fastest growing state in the nation that we live in, where the majority of this population growth is actually our own kids, um, I-15 is getting busier all the time. And to look at the price tags of growing I-15, putting a gondola up Little Cottonwood Canyon versus the $36 million a year it would be to fully subsidize the Utah Transit Authority system and really make the transition faster and more viable for more of us to get off of I-15 and get out of our single occupant vehicles, the time for that is now. So I think bringing those conversations at the same time that we understand there's an urgency with the legislature to expand I-15, there should also be an urgency to get us out of our cars and into public transit. As reported by Axios SLC on December 2nd, Kimba Horkes, the reporter, Utah sees unprecedented population growth driven by net migration and Salt Lake County, the Wasatch Front, uh, getting the brunt of that. And that's UDOT's argument is this is coming in the next 10, 15, 20 years. But I don't see how continually expanding the freeway is the answer. So what is it you're going to be pushing for? Well, realistically, they are going to do some expansions on the freeway, whether that is within their existing right-of-way or a broadened one, as we saw in that devastating map, um, they will do some project here. What the project ends up encompassing is obviously what we in the community are all totally invested in. But pushing for the the reality of a transit system that is more affordable and more convenient because there's more of it, We're already doing that in Salt Lake City with our sales tax dollars, buying up bus service like the 6th North, 10th North connection that we've built, over 70 
improved bus stops in the city just this year alone um, and paying for 15 minutes or less frequency, that should be happening system-wide. And it is such a fraction of the cost of the infrastructure cost on I-15 or for uh, Cottonwood Canyon's transit system. We're talking UDOT versus UTA, two separate Autonomous but organizations. Should they be? Exactly. That's what should I'm they asking. Be? And and I want to get to the synchronicity that you're trying to achieve on homelessness, getting state and city and local partners working together. Sounds like you want this to happen for transportation. I mean, we see the big dig. We're seeing things in California where they're putting things underground. Should we be if we're gonna spend this much money, should we think bigger? Yeah. Excuse me. And we're applying for federal grant dollars back to the feds and this generational investment trillion, more than a trillion dollars on the table for this kind of infrastructure. We have applied um, now for two grants to bury the intermodal hub, basically do the box and get the trains underground, which would open up over 60 acres between the west side and downtown in Salt Lake City. where our- That should tantalize any lawmaker who's a realist, realtor. <laughs> That's a lot of land. Yeah. It's an incredible proposition. Even Reno, Nevada's done it, actually, in burying their rails in the heart of their downtown and putting a train box in. So Salt Lake City's going to be going after these transformational uh land use renovations that get the current divisions and borders of our community activated into parks and space for housing and development. Okay, we're going to keep watching that with you. Uh, another story from Axios SLC and Kim Bajorquez on December 1st. Beds still available in Salt Lake County's winter overflow shelters. You also recently, with other folks, went to Miami to take a look at what's happening on the streets there mm-hmm. when it comes to helping people who are experiencing homelessness. This is going to be, along with I-15, a huge debate point with your challengers in the upcoming election. What is it that we need to do uh, to really tackle this issue? We end up um, being the spot people send their folks who are homeless to, as witnessed uh, out of Wyoming recently, news stories that confirming judges, uh, some of the court system putting people on buses to come to Salt Lake to get help. Yeah, this is, uh, let's rewind just five or six years to when the state determined uh, with the county and sort of with our previous mayor's chagrin to undo the downtown shelter of the road home and site new and more homeless resource centers, two of them in Salt Lake City, you know, the men's resource centers in South Salt Lake, and then, of course, the family shelter's been in Midvale. We did that because we collectively as a system said we can serve people better if we aren't stacking people 1,100-plus on a winter night at the old road home. So we have these smaller shelters that are supposed to serve demographics more specifically. But there's a piece, and by the way, that system as a whole here in Salt Lake County is working really well for the majority of people. About 70-plus percent of the people who come through our Homeless Resource Center system here in the county don't come back within about 90 days. So they resolve, and they get the assistance they need to get back into stable housing. But that 30 percent or so that are cycling in the system or, or staying in the resource center's in a more of a housing way, which they were never meant to be, are um, evidence of more complex situations with each individual. And of course, the lack of um, permanent supportive housing and even transitional housing that people should be flowing into. This is where the big change comes. We hadn't been able to touch that piece of the population very well as a system. We also didn't have the state stepping up until 
basically Wayne Niederhauser was hired by Governor Cox to come into this new role the legislature created, which he oversees homelessness for the state out of the governor's office. And I think Wayne's brought a lot of momentum and focus to the statewide perspective that um, no one was able to do before him. He admits that homelessness is not his specialty. It was never something that he'd dove into deeply as a legislator. But that also has brought credibility at the legislature that uh, wasn't there before. So as we look at the remaining 30% or so of the people who aren't being served very well by the system, there is an even smaller percentage of that group who are making um, probably the biggest impact in our downtown core, State Street area, North Temple area, and who have the highest needs. And I'd characterize them as the high needs and high impact population. And that impact is felt not only at the street level, but also financially through the emergency room system, the district attorney, the jails, the police department, um, all of these systems of government are spending the most amount of money on the smallest amount of, uh, the fewest amount of people who have these highest needs. And the system was really never built to serve it. We can back this all the way up to the Reagan administration. Yeah. And there is a high preponderance of mental health, even severe mental health needs in that population. So that's where we stepped into Miami. And the unique part, not only about finding a model that we have, we are now saying, yes, this is what we want to do, but it's actually that we have the state and the county and the judicial system and the jails working with the capital city and collectively saying, it's going to take all of us working in coordination and even financially working differently together in order to serve this population. But it's the right thing to do for these human beings. It's the right thing to do financially. And Miami, with their 22 years of existence with this program, have shown f even from the beginning that the cost savings are tremendous. How, how is it different? Um, as you know, and some of our listeners, I worked for Salt Lake City Police Department and saw from the inside how the rank and file were trying to collaborate with their partners in um, housing and homeless services in the courts and would meet regularly to discuss, you know, the, the, that high impact population. And uh, they have tried it from within. So how is this different? Um, is it just more coordination from the top down instead of the rank and file trying to get it done in spite of the top? Well, I think you actually hit the nail on the head when you said through the courts, because, because since we've lost our system for housing individuals with mental illness or creating really a, a better case managed and permanent supportive housing situation for them. The courts are the only way basically in the United States of America, but for a few of these communities like Miami-Dade County, where um, we can connect people who are experiencing homelessness and have mental health, severe mental health issues with the services that they need. And the court system was never built to do Health. To be a mental health system. It is provider. not a health system. Well, so are you talking about involuntary committals? Um, because you, I think that's what comes down to this high impact population. Yeah. Still individual individuals with constitutional rights, and they don't have to, whether they are aware of it or not, of their situation. They don't have to go into services. They don't have to accept help. So in Miami-Dade County, this is an approach, and it's the one that uh, our our group here in Utah is, is most interested in. 
they are still utilizing the function of the courts to connect people with their two options, basically. So let's, um, and we have an, uh, anonymized cases from here in Salt Lake City. I'll, I'll generalize one for you. We have an individual, a woman in her late 20s, she's been arrested 55 times in the last year. You know, we can kind of calculate how many dollars in police hours and emergency room visits and ambulance rides um, that's taken in the last year. She's maybe had a couple dozen um, misdemeanant charges against her, uh, usually released on pretrial, not, or if they go to jail, it's for a matter of hours. Really, jail is not the place for this anyway. Um, but there's a preponderance of judicial evidence that could be brought together. Let's now transfer this person to Miami-Dade County. And Judge Leifman there, who started this program and is still um, key in running it, could say to this individual when they um, have their court date and they're there, look, I, I've got this list of the, the criminal issues that you've been cited with. Um, I could put you behind bars for this amount of time, but what I really think would be best for you is the other alternative, which is this program. This program has at least one year of permanent supportive housing guaranteed. It comes with a peer, manage, a, a peer um, assistant. They come with case management. They have access to medical health, behavioral health, substance use, um, and they. This is all. These are wraparound services. Would you? Do you want me to proceed with the judicial and the criminal justice side, or are you willing to enter into this program? And in 22 years, they haven't had anyone say, "Yeah, I'd rather go to jail." 22 years. What's their success rate? They've actually closed a jail about 10 years into this program because their number of arrests has just plummeted. Um, it, these are not, we're not talking about felonies. And you know what? They, and they acknowledge there's a fraction of the population who are committing dangerous, violent crimes, and they need to be prosecuted. This is not a ticket for everyone, no matter what, if you have a mental illness. There are certain circumstances that this program is not appropriate for. But by the, the vast majority of them that right now are cycling through that Venn diagram of the judicial system, the jail on a daily basis, the emergency rooms, they may be, you know, out there howling at the moon right now, literally, um, that they are not being served. There's a tremendous amount of money being wasted, really, on cycling them through to no solution. And um, data sharing is a part of that, that we will actually need some state legislation to resolve so that the system can coordinate with each with itself. I say that broadly uh, from um, all of these partner perspectives, but uh, the cost savings is it's actually a fraction of the cost of what we're, in, we're investing today to no fruitful end. Do you think that message resonates, the pocketbook message resonates with the public beyond the compassion that um, our yeah. services demonstrate? Because we do pay for it as taxpayers one way oh, yeah. or another. Yeah. You know, I... I, you know, Laura, I, I started into local politics by being an air quality activist, turned advocate, turned policy activist up at the legislature. And um, I tried the heartstring, the, like, the, the way I felt about air quality messaging with the legislature. And I didn't get very far until we started making a business case for why air quality investments are worthwhile and why our lack of investment was hurting us as a state. And, you know, in my nine years in City Hall, I 
have learned that you need to talk about it in both ways. And yeah, from a human being standpoint, the money is not the point of this. It's the suffering and the system turning a blind eye because the system was never set up to serve this complex of a situation with an individual. It really wasn't. Mm. And we aren't funding our service providers who could do so to be able to take in the capacity of the people um, that need it today on our streets. We're talking with Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. And just a couple more questions for you, Mayor. I appreciate your time coming in on the weekend so we could share this on the Monday night show. Uh, I want to go to Heartstrings again. Um, Bill Tibbetts, Crossroads Urban Center, has been on quite a bit. They do their annual turkey dinner giveaway. They got another one coming up December 23rd for folks who need help putting a, a holiday dinner on the table. Details in the show notes, but also at krcl.org under rallies and resources, folks. Um, he told us that in September, upwards of 70 families had been turned away from the family shelter here in the in the valley that it's not been this dire for families mm-hmm. who are homeless in quite some time since the mid-90s, he said. Um, we're supposedly in a state with a booming economy, obviously not for everyone. Um, inflationary uh, economy as well. Some warnings of another recession coming in the new year. As, as mayor, I know you have a lot of plans for, was it the tech, tech hive? Uh, is that the, am I using, I'm not using the right phrase, no, am Well, I? you're marrying too. <laughs> okay. There's the bio hive. The bio hive. And tech lake city. And tech lake city. Um, but spreading that, uh, that economic growth yeah. a little more equitably, what do you think needs to happen in the new year? And what are your concerns about families this winter? Oh, they are, they're real every single day. And at our, my family, I think families across the state are feeling the, of affordability of living crisis that we're experiencing. And um, while a city can't control a market, we sure do have a lot of levers. And we are inventing new levers at the same time. We do have a very strong tech economy here in the state of Utah. It's the fastest growing, highest paying industry in the state. It's more economically resilient even to, you know, uh, economic pressures than other industries are. So we are doubling down on trying to not just ba- make a better ecosystem for those companies to be here. I met with a company on Friday that is has came up in Altitude Labs up at Research Park, which is like a, an incubator for about a dozen companies. They've already scaled out of there, and they are uh, 65% women, two women co-founders, and they're doing drug discovery for cancer treatment. It's an awesome company, exactly who we want. But as they grow from, now they're at 17 employees, we want them, as they scale out of the spot there and to come downtown into the, the core of the city. We want that because we want those jobs here, number one. We want them to, uh, their mere existence attracts other similar companies because that talent ecosystem is really important. They call it the bumpability. And um, most of all, I see the purpose of my investment on behalf of the city in making an economy that attracts this so that we can connect those jobs with our residents. So on November 10th, we had a BioHive Summit at Salt Palace and 
um, our economic development team and I thought, let's invite high school students from Salt Lake City's three high schools to come and check this out. We had a goal of 50. We ended up with almost 70 students coming, juniors and seniors mostly. And we showed them around recursion down there at Gateway, took them to BioMariu, another bio life science company in the in Salt Lake City. And then we went to the summit and they got to meet some a uh, couple of CEOs, both of whom grew up on the west side in Salt Lake City. And um, the, re- the resounding um, impression in these young students was, I didn't know these kind of jobs were here. I didn't realize that I don't necessarily need a college degree to get in with these companies. And um, a lot of them were like, I want to tell my parents about this. And that's, that's my purpose. We have families working five jobs among two parents to try to keep things afloat with their families. And there are great jobs out here, right here in Salt Lake City, new jobs happening that they should be connected to. That's what keeps me going. That's what I wake up to do in the morning. So um, our ambition as a city is, yes, about creating greater tax returns so we can put more streetlights and art murals and, you know, take care of the city literally, but it's absolutely about creating intergenerational cycles of thriving where we have had intergenerational cycles of poverty. And honestly, that is not an overly, that's not too ambitious. We can do this. All these issues that we spoke about are going to be part of this next mayoral race, which is November 2023. And former Salt Lake City Mayor Rocky Anderson came out blistering last week um, Yen, you coming out again to run? <laughs> yeah, I have always wanted to do two terms. Um, and, you know, you look at an ambitious agenda, which we came in with, um, and it really takes a long time to steer a ship and, and make an arc turn there. We had some setbacks um, by being ultra-focused on public safety and keeping small businesses afloat and making literal space for people to get outside and recreate safely and all of that. I think we did an incredible job as a community, Salt Lake City. Yeah, Yeah, Salt Lake City is stronger today. Um, And there's there's a lot of tragedy and loss, a lot of people lost. But we are running this city in a more dynamic and innovative way and I think altruistic way because of what we've been through collectively as a community. I'm really proud of our communities. And um, I think that their vitality and tenacity is on full and beautiful display right now. So even though some of the the big project ideas um, had to go on the back burner while we managed a a series of crises, um, I, I would do it all over again. I'd say yes. If you told me on election night in 2019, do you know what's about to happen? I would say I'm absolutely going to do this again. I I love this city. And most of all, I'm just so proud of you all. You're, you're crushing it out there. And we just want to do everything we can to give you every opportunity to keep kicking ass and taking names. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall recorded just yesterday here at the KRCL studios. Now, if you have a thought on I-15, housing, homelessness, I'd love to hear it. Send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. And I'd also love to hear what you have to say. So use your smartphone, record a voice memo, and send it to that email so we can amplify your voice during Radioactive. When we come back, we're going to close the show with Blake Spalding of Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm. 
Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event, a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. KRCL's Music Meets Movies takes a turn towards the holidays with a documentary film that dives into the underground world of alternative Christmas music. There is a underground of tape traders and CD traders across the country who do this, try to make cool Christmas discs every year. The worst music in the world is bad Christmas music. I found the typical Christmas music grim. So I thought I'd start making a soundtrack to get myself through the holidays. So talk about what happens in Hollis, Christmas in Hollis. I call Bill Beck sweating. I just wrote the best drama of my life. Christmas, you can love it or hate it, but you can't really ignore it. The music and the memories pierces that pathway. Of course it's powerful. Join KRCL Thursday, December 8th at Brewies in Salt Lake for a screening of the 2013 documentary Jingle Bell Rocks. Tickets at the door at 6.30, movie at 7.30. Information at krcl.org. Hope to see you there. I'm going to be there. More details. As always, krcl.org, like Eric just said. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! at 7, followed by Red, White, and Blues at 8, Night Train at 10.30, and John Florence, Brand New Day at 6 a.m. Our program online at krcl.org. All right, to close the show tonight, a restaurant in the Uinta Basin that has turned to GoFundMe to keep its doors open in Boulder, Utah. To find out why, let's pass the microphone and find out more. Hi, Laura. I'm... I'm I'm doing okay. Yeah. A little overwhelmed. I'm like Spalding, and I am one of the founding chef owners of Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm in Boulder, Utah. Paint a picture for us first. When you get up in the morning and go out the front door, what do you see? Oh well, a lot of rocks, <laughs> desert trees. Uh, we are in um, the heart of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in what is sometimes considered the most remote town in the lower 48 um, in terms of its proximity to an airport or a grocery store and things like that. So yeah, on Highway 12. Yeah, we're on scenic Highway 12, so we're kind of equidistant between Bryce National Park and Capitol Reef National Park and, and in a very extraordinary protected area. Our town is an inholding inside the National Monument. How many years have you been doing this down there? We just completed our 23rd season, and gosh, I guess I'll just say it, I think we had decided it was going to be our last because the obstacles we've faced in the last few years have just been mounting and really, um, really discouraging and um, so complicated that I really didn't sleep this whole year. <laughs> All night trying to work on the monkey puzzle in my brain of yeah. how to solve for Hell's Backbone Grill. You were ready to hang it up. Well, I mean, in some ways, yes, and in other ways, Jen and I were really heartbroken because we have a core loyal staff, some of people who've been with us for, you know, basically since we opened, so 23 years, and then a lot of, like, our management have been with us for nearly 10 years, and so they've married each other and built homes and lives around our work, and so then it was very kind of um, uncomfortable to imagine letting them down 
and you know we were trying to figure out like so how do we reinvent ourselves and bring along again these reinvent people? yourself right. right but i'm you know i'm 58 and i'm i i will say that uh when jen and i started the restaurant i was 36 and she was 28 you know and now 22 years later you know we love it but whoa these last few years nothing could have prepared me for just the sheer manual labor that we put in, you know, of, of being there six, seven days a week doing what needed to be done. It's just everything. And I want to say, like, I'm just going to pause for a second and just say that I want to I wanna be really clear that this struggle we are having is endemic in the restaurant industry. And it's it's we're going to we're I mean, I'm I'm really sad to say, like, I'm going to probably get teary, but like I. I have so many restaurant friends right now that are really facing the same exact struggle we are. And I think um, brace yourselves, listeners, because we're about to see a wave of the closures of many of our favorite places because there's just so many obstacles for restaurants right now. It's it's wild. It's not what I pictured. Well, one of the beautiful things that you have always done, you and Jen, your partner, Jen Castle, is um, also put some real thought into where you get the ingredients. And you had a small little mini farm there, right? I don't know how many it was. It's a pretty, was. <laughs> pretty sizable farm. We, Remind we have, us. Uh, it's six and a half acres. That's not, that's not very many. And we, you know, this year was a hard year weather-wise. And I mean, obstacle upon obstacle upon obstacle. But, you know, in any given year, we'll grow between 20 and 15 thousand pounds of produce at that farm that goes entirely to the restaurant so a big part of our staff and our labor is our farm so you're analyzing what's going to happen here at the end of the season because you kind of hibernate for the winter and um yeah we close you're thinking i don't think we can do it again and people started to get word and you've resisted gofundmes in the past but you um have agreed to one starting to get some coverage for it. And you're just trying to raise the bare minimum to get through to another season, it sounds like. Yeah. And I mean, the it was a really, I don't know. I, I am a person who gives to GoFundMes. I support lots of nonprofits and political campaigns. From the beginning, Jen and I, you know, are, we've never actually, it's been like a core value thing to not actually do advertisements, but instead to give to nonprofits and in that way sort of support and get out in front of like the the people who support those nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was what we did instead of actually advertising was like, how do we make a multiplicity of benefit with what little money we have for these kinds of things? And I think Jen and I, I mean, we really, really struggled with this idea, but, you know, we started warning our our customers and our staff and talking to people, you know, long-term friends and guests and saying, we don't think we can do it again because we're going to fall deeper and deeper into debt. And then what happens? Like, we're then what do we do? Bankrupt? Do we, you know, what do we do? Because the money that we owe, I want to be clear, it's not like we owe vendors or credit cards or things like that. It's strictly federal, uh, the the federal idea, EIDL, Economic Impact Disaster Relief Loan, that we took in 2020, thinking it would help us have resilience. It seemed like a good idea, but it's been interest-bearing this whole time. And we didn't think that um, we would have to really use it. We thought we could 
like have it and then give it back or something. Yeah. And then and then instead we were drawing off of it all year f- just to make payroll. And, you know, that was pretty shocking. So what are some of the unknown expenses that the average listener would be unfamiliar with that goes into this equation of doing another season? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I'm going to just say a thing right now that I don't think a lot of people know about. But like, for example, the Utah legislature decided um, to be non-conforming with IRS tax code and with the federal guidelines. And so they actually taxed um, small businesses um, on their PPP money. So we received forgivable money to help pay our employees to theoretically get them off of unemployment, which we did. And then we didn't know, like it was a, it was a known thing that that wouldn't be expense, but Utah went the other way. So we had How to, much did that cost you? We had to write a surprise check for nearly $50,000 to the state this spring that we didn't have. So that came off of the idle loan. So then, I have not heard that for for-profit uh, ventures having to pay um, that. Yep, it's it's real. And, and so that was really shocking. The state also doubled our unemployment contributions, which had been... You know, for our 35 or so employees, it had been about 5000 a month, and it doubled to ten. And then we just got a letter last week that they raised the rate again by another percentage um, point. And so I think there's a lot of hidden costs. For some reason that I can't fathom, every one of our insurance policies that we're required to carry um, doubled, quadrupled like that. And the and inflationary then, economy. Yeah, but it's it's not even it's not even the problem with butter, which you know anyone who's been to our restaurant knows our engine kind of runs on butter. We love butter, and we stand by butter and butter, butter like quadrupled or something crazy. And so that's one thing, but it's all the hidden costs of having a restaurant, the things you have to do to be compliant with um, the law that like skyrocketed. And so, and you you don't own your footprint down there. That's correct. We've been renting for 23 years. And, you know, we have a good relationship with our landlord. I don't want anyone blaming him for this. Um, But it is, it's, it's hard to rent, you know, because we are responsible for all the maintenance of our building, except for like the exterior foot, yeah, whatever the roof, you know. I'm guessing you've deferred some maintenance and some capital improvements. Yeah, a lot of things that need to be upgraded. How old are your pans? My pans are really old. I mean, I'm like a thrift shopper, you know, (laughs) so I, I, we don't have great pans and, you know, some of them were, you know, came with, so we, we started the restaurant in 2000 as like former river cooks in Grand Canyon, and there it was kind of a turnkey operation, and so a lot of the pots and pans we have are still the same ones. <laughs> I mean, we've added. I don't want it seem like we're it seem like we're a junk show. You know, we have we we have what we need to cook and do a good job. But you're frugal. Would, we are careful. Yeah, we we don't you know we don't you we don't buy the the really yeah. expensive equipment. And you know, one of the reasons is because we've never had investors. Like it's yeah. pretty rare to be a chef owned. Um, restaurant. You bootstrap this every season, and yet you're a James Beard Award semifinalist, as we've talked about on the show in the past. What is it you want people to know walking away from this interview about what you hope comes next? Oh, gosh. I want people to know that I'm so grateful. Like, we already have like something like over 2,000 people who've donated to this GoFundMe 
which really like we're we're undone. I I don't want to cry on the radio, but I just can't even process the generosity and the outpouring of love. Like it's astounding. I was talking to a friend of mine from college who's a therapist now, and she was laughing and she said, "Well, you can't say no to the universe, Blake." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I guess the universe wants us to keep going for a little while longer." I want um, people to know that um, just that restaurants are having a tough time, particularly in Utah. You know, there hasn't been much support in the state for restaurants. Um, Not to mention the way our liquor sales are structured, which adds to the cost of a restaurant. Yeah, so most people probably don't even know that restaurants pay full retail for the alcohol that they serve in their restaurants. So we don't have like the... The There's deep, no margin. Deep profit driven kind of <laughs> thing that happens like if you're a California or an Arizona restaurant. Yeah. So yeah, it's just getting really, really complicated. So um, you know, I I think there's also an epic labor shortage for reasons that are much more complicated than people are making it out to be. And um a lot of it has to do with that restaurant workers had a lot of trauma during the pandemic, like you know, we didn't have anyone personally on our staff die, but we had people get really sick and develop, you know, um, you know, we have we have like six people out with COVID right now, even as we're trying to, we have an online store and part of this whole thing has been like, everyone's like, I'll give to the GoFundMe and I'm going to buy everything from the online store, which is so beautiful, but we're inundated with orders and then we have, you know, our fully vaccinated staff, it, you know, a number of them are out with COVID. So we're still short staffed, even when we're closed for the season. Well, where can folks check you out online, learn about the store and the GoFundMe? Oh, so sweet. Um, well, uh, our Instagram is Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm. And then our website, hellsbackbonegrill.com. And yeah, I, I am hoping for brighter days for all restaurants. You know, I I wanted to say, like my beloved friend Romina, her restaurant is closing, Le Madeline, at the end of the month. And I, I think she is an extraordinary um, pastry chef, and I'm going to go there tomorrow and buy everything I can find to bring back to my hardworking Christmas elves. Because <laughs> I just love her so much, and I can't believe that she has to close too. But, you know, anyway, I think, I think just, um, yeah. I'm obviously a little bit in a limbic state right now. Yeah. I'm not, hopefully I'm making sense. You are. And uh, I'll put in the show notes, folks, the connection to Hell's Backbone Grill. But thank you for stopping in here at KRCL and the safest of travels back, Lara, back home. Laura, thank you so much. And again, I'm just, I'm astonished and grateful for everyone's generosity and the love that we've been shown the last ooh, 72 hours or so. And 23 years. From Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm, chef owner Blake Spaulding. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the 23-year-old restaurant in the Uinta Basin. And I just took a peek at their GoFundMe. It looks like over the weekend, uh, the generosity of their patrons, they've passed their goal. Well, I'm Laura Jones, and that is our show. Thank you for plugging into the community with me here. Weeknights at 6, it's Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, 
and DIY creatives. Questions, comments, or suggestions, all you got to do is send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. And listen again, when you want, where you want, with KRCL's mobile app, available wherever you get your apps. Tomorrow night on the show, it's the Black, Bold, and Brilliant team with Rashawn Leak and me back to preview their next gathering. It's the Black Food Edition. Plus Utah poet Michael McLean on Fume, a Midwest chapbook winner. He's back in Utah for a visit. He's been spending some time in New Zealand getting his Ph.D. On Wednesday, we kick off year-end Radiothon. Nick Burns will be here. We'll have some special guests from the other side village. Fox 13's Ben Winslow on the Great Salt Lake. And, of course, your opportunity to support listeners, Community Radio of Utah. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. KRCL, Salt Lake City.